A number of years ago, um, Time Magazine, in uh, doing a special article about the Bible, said this about it. Um, they said that the Bible has done more to shape literature, history, entertainment, and culture than any book ever written. And we forget, I think, sometimes because of the way um, we, we do some things in our culture, that the Bible is year after year the best-selling book. If they would put it on the list of bestsellers, it would always be at the top. There are 100 million copies sold a year. The lifetime record of the Bible is that it's sold, they say, um, more than 5 billion copies. It's this huge, huge book that way. And you know, <clears throat> for us, we oftentimes think about all the many ways that God communicates with us, the way we connect with God through sometimes a special liturgy, Sometimes through being in a beautiful place in nature, sometimes through a word a friend says. But day in and day out, the place we encounter God's voice oftentimes is through Scripture. That we get, we hear God's voice speak that way. And I think, you're so kind, Eric. Thank you. What a, we could pause and have a whole sermon on, on being a servant right there. That's awesome. Thank you. <clears throat> and I'll, I want to receive it, so. But we oftentimes think about the way that we hear God's voice speak is through Scripture. And if you look at the book of Common Prayer, in the back of it, it has the outline of faith, the catechism. And what we read there is it says, one of the questions is, why do we call it the Word of God? And the answer, is, it says, is because it still speaks. And that's what we believe, but it's kind of complicated, right? <clears throat> I, um, I'm always trying to read through the Bible. So I read through it when I finish I start again. And this last time reading through the Bible, I decided that every time I came to something that was unpleasant, I would put a frowny um, sign in the margin. Because I'm one of these people, I like to highlight, mark, and do all this. But I've been amazed in the Old Testament. There are a lot of frowny signs in the margin right now. It's a complicated book, right? And it's also complicated in how we interpret it and the interpretive posture that we take. I did my undergraduate at Baylor, which of course is, a, is a, um, a religious school in part. And one of my good friends I met there um, was a guy named Sam. And when I met Sam, he was a religion major. And he was there because he wanted to ultimately become a pastor. And Sam had been raised as a, a very conservative Christian on the fundamentalism kind of scale. And he got into these higher level classes where they started getting some historical critical stuff we'll talk about in a few minutes and he got to this place where one day is there they were studying it he realized that there there was a conflict because he had this one passage I think it's from numbers that says that God caused them to number the people and then this parallel passage same story told in another part of the Bible says Satan caused them to be numbered and his his brain at the time just I mean that just Everything he'd been taught, everything he understood just blew up. And he lost his faith out of the whole thing. He really did lose his faith out of the whole thing down to this day. And um, what does a religion major do who's lost their faith? He went on to be a lawyer. <laughs> just, just, no, no, just, I, I, no, I can say that. I love all the lawyers in the room. But that, that is true. He did go on to be a lawyer. Um, and we're still good friends to this day, i got to tell you. We still, we still have some discussion. And I've actually told him he needs to tune in on this sermon today. But, um, but this inconsistency sort of blew it, right? And I think so our interpretive posture matters. And the kind of stuff we're going to talk about today is ultimately going to matter. As Justin mentioned, 
we're starting a whole new year-long initiative to focus in at a deeper level on the Bible during this year. So all the Sunday school is around God's story is going to be planned as we kind of walk through Scripture this year. But what we want to do in here over the next six weeks today and in the, in the five weeks coming is we really want to look at what are your people's thinking people's objections to the Bible? What are some of the issues that come up? We want to give some tools for how we engage the Bible. And then we want to jumpstart some of it. And the next couple of weeks are kind of in that category. But that's where we want to go. And today I want to look at the Bible sort of itself. Like what is it? Where does it come from? That, those kinds of questions as we go into it. And the beginning place of that discussion is to think about the authorship of it. Because the long-standing view of the church is that this book is authored by God along with human authors and trying to sort through what that means, right? And I think oftentimes we're really prepared to appreciate the divine side of it, but we, don't, we sort of disregard the humanity that's involved in it, right? And there are lots of ways we look at this, but just giving as an example to start with for a minute, think about the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, you know, the tradition of the church in ancient times was that Moses wrote it. And, um, of course, there's some on-the-face complications with that, right? Because there's part of the first five books that's going to describe Moses dying. Well, who's writing that? And then you got passages that are completely different depending on how you view the authorship, right? Because there's part of those books that talks about Moses being one of the most humble men that ever walked the planet. And you're like, okay, well, that's kind of cool if someone else is writing it. But if he's writing it, we're going to view it completely differently, right? And then about 150 years ago, some things happened that are controversial at some level. But all the, um, the new science and rational thought and all the stuff that was going on that people were bringing to bear on ancient documents, finally at some point somebody said, oh, you know, we need to take some of these things and apply them to the Bible. And there were people that were like, no, 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 you can't do that. It's God's word. And there were other people like, God gave us brains. Why wouldn't we do that? And we'll talk about more of that in a, few, in a few minutes. But as people were diving into it, you started to realize things like the book of Genesis probably has three different authors. That's what most, um, most of the seminaries would teach that today, that there are three different sources that come together. That what really happened with it is when the Jewish people go off into exile in Babylon in the 6th century B.C., they end up being these editors and put this stuff together to get what we, we have today as the final version of Genesis. And there's some of us who think, wow, that's so cool. Of course God works that way. And there's other people that are like shaking in their shoes like, oh, that's tearing everything up. You can't do that. And so there are different views on how, on how we see that. But it, some people, when we start talking about how this comes together, some people really want to hold on to that God sort of dictated it. But again, you have other problems because then... You think about a passage like in Psalm 13 where the psalmist, you know, the psalms are so great at getting this emotional tone. But like in Psalm 13, the writer is saying, God, how long are you going to leave me here? Have you, how long are you going to forget me? You think God's dictating that? I mean, this is a cry from the heart. And you see this again and again in the psalms. So however we ultimately begin to talk about this, we need to think about human and we need to think about the divine in the authorship of this. And if it's a ghost writer, or is it dictation, or is it, you know, what level? We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But how do we get this book as it exists today? Well, I think there are lots of complicated issues around how we get it in terms of the authorship. 
more on the human side than we think about sometimes. Like, for example, you know, if you think about this, probably the greatest book, and I'm not going to ask him to do this, but if I were to ask Eric, what do people consider the greatest of the 21 letters of the Bible? Like, if you had one letter to explain Christianity that you were going to give to people stuck on an island, which one would it be? And if I were to tell you that it was written by Tertius, some would be like, Tertius? I don't remember any book with Tertius, but it's Romans. The end of the book of Romans tells you that it's written by Tertius. But then you get, okay, so Paul dictates it, and then Tertius writes it, and he, at the end he gives greetings from the writer of it. So you got God inspiring, Paul dictating, Tertius writing, and then we get it down to what we have today. And you start thinking about all the complexities of this. And then you start thinking about how the Bible it got to us itself, the canonization process of, this, of getting this, the word Bible meaning the books. And then later it comes down to meaning just the book. But it's, it's a collection of these 66 books. And all the complexities with that. And, you know, again, we're, we don't have time to dwell on all of this. But just thinking, starting for a minute with the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, the whole canon of the Old Testament really doesn't get firmly established until like the year 100 A.D. But when Jesus is around, the, there are three parts of how the, the Hebrew Bible gets broken down or the Old Testament gets broken down. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Well, the first two of those were set when Jesus was there. The third one, the writings, got established more a little bit later. There was some, some give and flow on that. But even having said that, there are two versions of the Old Testament floating around, right? There's a Hebrew version, and then there was the translation, the Septuagint, that had all the Greek writings. Okay, fine, but they don't line up completely. There's a whole bunch of extra stuff in the Greek, because some of the Jewish writings were original in the Greek. So you get those books. And then, so it's interesting to look back at Jesus. It looks like he's probably quoting the Greek. Certainly Paul's quoting the Greek. So you start thinking about that. How's the Hebrew? How's that one work? And all those different things. And then what do you do with this overlap business? And um, I'll, I'm going to say more about that in just a second. The New Testament, you get, they mainly collected these because they thought they had a, the authority of the apostles behind them. And, you know, there are all these, again, all these questions about how our Bible gets put together. I, you know, I went to Baylor. I've got lots of friends all over the map. I went to a Methodist seminary, a Roman Catholic high school. I mean, I got friends everywhere on all this thing. But they all have different views on this. But sometimes I like to remind some of my friends that, are, that, are, that think the Bible just fell from heaven all at once that it wasn't until the year 467 that we get the very first complete list of the Bible in Athanasius' festal letter. That's the first time we get the whole thing. So I always like to remind them, like, we went all the way into the 400s without a set Bible. And the church was sustained by the traditions and the Old Testament, but the traditions and these letters being circulated, but it wasn't the Bible. And so church tradition and the church itself matters extremely. If you didn't get that, the first 400 years, that's what it was. So don't the idea that it's sola scriptura and the Bible drops down and blow all this stuff off is nowhere in the Bible and certainly wasn't the first few hundred years of the Bible. There's a whole sermon right there, a whole discussion. But what the church does, when you think about how we get this, um, again, not to dwell on some of these things, but the Greek version of the Old Testament and the Hebrew version don't line up. The Roman Catholics ultimately went with, with the Greek version. And then at the Reformation, the Protestants went with the Hebrew version. And, so, and they, so they don't line up. And what do Anglicans and Episcopalians do? We're always sort of like the middle-of-the-road people. We took 
the extra parts that don't line up, and we stuck it in the middle. So it's in our Bible. It's in the middle. When you see that part that says with the Apocrypha, that's what that is. And our teaching along the way said, well, the Apocrypha is good for reading for your spiritual edification, but, it's, but no doctrine should be based on it. That's kind of what we've said about it. But it's, but it's in our Bible. It's in this middle section. And one of these days, I really, really want to do a sermon from it. I've never done that. Have you ever done that? Yeah, all right. Good for you. <laughs> but we get this book and just a little bit of data about it. You know, so 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,000-something verses, depending on the translation, 777,000-something uh, words written over 1,400 years. But these are all things, you know, bestseller, all these things. But the thing that matters about it is the power that's in this book. Because it will change you if you read it. You will connect with God if you continue to read it and take it in and study it. And that leads us to really, again, to talking about where's God in it. And if you were to ask any um, biblical scholar, um, Christian biblical scholar, how do we understand that? The very single verse they're all going to read is one from 2 Timothy, verse 3.16. And I want to read it. Um, this is what it says. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And, you know, there are all kinds of questions that pop up immediately. But sometimes people read this, again, they don't understand that Paul's right. When Paul's writing this, he would have gagged or laughed one or the other if you told him his stuff was going to be in the Bible someday. He's talking about the Old Testament. Is he talking about the Greek or the Hebrew? I don't know. Is he talking about every word? Is he talking about every verse? Is he talking just about the main ideas? What level is he saying? it? Well, he doesn't say, right? We, in fact, it's, it's kind of more than that because when Paul uses this word inspired, he's using this word theonoustos and it's a word that uh, Paul makes up. It's not been used before. So I'm going to say more about that. So we don't know what, necessarily what it means. Does it mean, you know, what? I, when, when Eric prepares a sermon, when I prepare a sermon, we all pray that God would use us somehow, some way, and inspire us and use us and, work and speak through us some way to help people connect. That's what we pray. Is that, is that what this is? Is it more than that? This is a word that means God breathed. But usually when we get a word and we don't know what it means, there are usually two places we go look. We go look how it's used in Scripture elsewhere so we can get an idea of what it means. Or we also go look at how it was used in culture at the time. We got nothing. I mean, he made this word up. It's not in Scripture elsewhere. It's not anywhere in Greek literature at the time. It's used later in the early church after him, but not before. So we don't know exactly what it means, right? And there's a range of possibilities, there are some people who to this day will espouse this version of verbal plenary inspiration, that it's every word sort of dictated, all the way to the other end of the spectrum of those who think it's like an author of any book finding inspiration to write, that God's giving them the inspiration to write. And it matters how we view it, right? Because when we get into some of these hard questions later and we're talking about there's human and divine in this, if we got a big place for the human in it, we understand inspired but not perfect because humans are involved in it. But if you think every single word is from God, then you're like, no, you can't ask any questions because it's, you know, God meant it. You know, and all these different kinds of things that we say, right? 
So there's, a, I think personally there's a bit of mystery and we need to hold on to that. We're going to talk about that. But there's also this idea of the inspiration when you hear the word. You know, a lot of times before we listen to the gospel, Justin will, will sing a song preparing us to hear the gospel and all this. But part of this is recognizing that God may inspire when it's written, but also inspire when it's heard. And some people will make the analogy that it's like in the book of Genesis where, where God takes clay, the story says, he takes clay and he molds and then he breathes his breath, his ruach, into him and then there's life. And that this, the same thing happens with scripture, that, that, that we read it, that God pours his breath on it and that it comes alive in us. That there's, a, there's an inspiration side on receiving it as well as how it was written. At the end of the day, what we know is God's in it. That God somehow is, is part of the authorship of it. That's our long-standing view of the church and the way we understand it. But I think even then it doesn't end the story because it's like, okay, what, is that, what does that mean? Sometimes people want to say, oh, well, you know, it's our, it's our owner's manual for life. It's like, okay, go look at your owner's manual of your car. It's not like this. You're not going to find... How mad would you be if you opened up to change your tire and it's giving you poetry? <laughs> or the fiery prophet, maybe on maintenance or something. Or, you know, apocalyptic, <laughs> time to sell it. I don't know. <laughs> you know, all the different kinds of literature. That it's not an owner's manual like that, but it does give us guidance. Like, I remember when my parents became, like, went from being nominal Christians to being really involved Christians. They went to Curcio, for those of you who've done that. But I remember the next week, we went to breakfast, and there was a Bible at every place at our table. And I opened it up and read the inscription that my parents had written. It more or less said, you know, let this be your guide in life, and you'll, you'll find what, more or less what it's about. It was something along those lines. But it is our guide. Not an owner's manual, but it is our guide. And what we recognize in it is that God speaks. God does breathe. We will connect with God. He's in it. But it's complicated. The great theologian Karl Barth said that it's simultaneously simple and complex. And I think when we read it and we started getting in all of my frowny faces and all the different questions that we get when we read it, some of the things for us to think about is, one of the things I would think about for sure is that the ultimate revelation of God is not in Scripture but in Jesus. And we sometimes need to think about that sort of in terms of priorities when you're trying to sort this out. The pastor, Adam Hamilton, who's the uh, pastor of the biggest Methodist church in the United States, he says he likes to think about it, uh, Jesus in this way being a colander. And when you're trying to think about what you're going to hold on to and what you're going to kind of let drip through, think about Jesus because he's the ultimate revelation. What's his love like? What's his sacrifice like? What are his teachings like? Like giving a priority to those and holding on to those more than anything as you wade through these problematic verses and these problematic things or these things you don't always get, right? But I think this book, it's imperative if we're going to grow that we study it. I think Jesus, I mean, God gave us brains and he wants us to bring them. That we're thinking people and we don't have to apologize for that. And we're invited to wrestle with it and, and to walk with it. And I think there's even a level at which um, Jesus does that himself, because you'll see that, um, you know, Jesus will encounter some passage and he'll say, oh, you've heard this. I'm going to say this. He's giving a new turn on it. That's, his, I think, a version of him struggling with it. Or you'll look at some passages like John 8 where Jesus is brought this woman caught in adultery. 
And we don't know how all this looks, but I always imagine her, she's wrapped in a sheet. All these guys are sitting there with big rocks in their hands, and they're coming to Jesus saying, the scripture says we're supposed to stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't say, yeah, it says it right here. Okay. He says, okay, which one of you is sinless? Y'all go ahead and throw the first one. He's taking a new view on it. He's, ta- he's giving a new, new look at it, right? I think it's his version of struggling with it as well, of kind of he's, where he's going with it and fulfilling it and taking it to another place. All of this, I want to end with this, but all of this, I think, with all the struggles and questions and whatever we have about the level of stuff, we encounter God in it, and it's powerful. And I worked with an Anglican priest for a year in London who tells about his conversion to Christianity. And and some of y'all have heard this story. This is a guy named Nicky Gumbel. But he says that he was a student at Cambridge, and his roommate, who's also named Nicky, who I know also, um, he became a Christian without going into his story. And, and Nicky Gumbel was an atheist at the time. And, and Nicky Gumbel was like, oh, this is horrible. He's going off. This is like him becoming a Mooney. And he's like, I've got to, help, I've got to save him from this. So Nicky Gumbel was like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go read the New Testament so I can engage him and help him see how it's wrong. And he said he had a weekend free right then. And he started reading Matthew 1. And he says he read through Matthew. He read through... Luke and Mark and he got to the end of John and he said it was like God was speaking to him and he he found God in it in reading John's gospel which is what John prayed for as you read at the end of John and then he instead of trying to convince him otherwise he he gets on board and those guys are still in ministry to this day together we encounter God in scripture so don't let all these little questions or things we wrestle with or the struggles or all the things pull us back Let's engage him and walk together because we'll find God there. God still speaks through it. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us. You created us and you call us. And Lord, we thank you that today in so many ways you still speak through Scripture. We ask, Lord, and we give you thanks for the people that teach it. We thank you for this resource. And we ask that you'd use it in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.